following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. So this is a very important chapter. There are many important chapters in the Bible. Of late, we've been looking at the Holy Spirit and what the work of the Holy Spirit should mean to us, and I actually intended to continue that as at least one more week. Um, but I thought I was going to—I'm going to leave that for now, and I want to go on to uh, a new subject, uh, something relevant to our celebration of Communion today, uh, and possibly s- something that is intimately connected with Communion that we may not always be aware of, and it is. The resurrection. It has to do with Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is a very long chapter with quite a long, um, we call that an argument, Paul's not arguing with anybody, but maybe he is, but he's, he's, he's discussing something in his writing that on one hand is a, can seem a bit convoluted the way he sees how certain things are connected but he's trying to make a very important point for the Corinthians and some very important point for us to understand with regard to Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. And so we're going to be looking at the section that was just read for us, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 34, and then we're, God willing, going to complete the chapter next time. I'm going to go pretty quickly through the verses that were read. I'm going to go through them again. Um, And we'll be pausing at a a couple of spots. So let's pray again before we continue. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the only full reflection of truth and that you, in your grace and by your power, has revealed your truth to us. Lord, we are so often uh, constrained by our misunderstandings, by lies. Help us, Lord, to see you, ourselves, life through your word, that we might be free to live life in the way that you have called us to. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, verse 1, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. Um, Now this this chapter takes place after another long, the word is argument, (laughs) uh, from chapters um, um, 12 to 14, where Paul is addressing how they've been conducting their meetings. And and in there is the... um, Paul's discussion about spiritual gifts. There's the love chapter, which is supposed to tell us the core of how we should be relating to one another. And then when he's done that, he comes to this last major thing that he wants to share with this believing community in, in the city of Corinth. And he is, is coming to them up with a core aspect of the gospel message that he shares. And he says... This is the gospel I preach to you by in which you stand and by which you are being saved, which some people find that a funny kind of 
of phrase uh, in which you are being saved. There, there's a sense in which when we come to know the Lord, we are rescued from our sin and we have an eternity with God to look forward to. We are, we have confidence in God being with us based on that relationship that he has established by his grace through faith. In another sense, there's a process going on. And this is what allows this to fit in with what I've been sharing over the past several weeks, where we need to engage this process. And so, continuing on here, so he says, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. And again, this is this is what I've been burdened to share. A, a lot of people reject any kind of sense of if, when it has to do anything to do with our relationship with the Lord. Um, he, he says, you are part of a secure process if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So there are people that have had experiences, they've been part of churches um, that teach the good, good and right things, but are they truly connected to those truths? Do they really have an ongoing relationship to the Lord? If we don't hold fast and we are not standing in the grace of God, then to assume that we are secure in that grace I, I, is, is misguided. So, he, so he's sharing this, um, this, this gospel in which we stand, by which we're being saved. If we hold fast to the word Paul's preached, unless you believed in vain. And he throws in this idea, something that, he, of course, he doesn't believe, but it's what he wants to to uh, speak about to the, to the Corinthians, that we have the security and confidence in God unless what we're trusting in is useless. That's what in vain has, has to do with. So he goes on, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So there's a priority in Paul's message, and he wants to share this, pri- this pri- priority thing, this most important thing, continuing in verse 3, and that first important thing is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is first and foremost the most important thing about our faith, that Jesus died for our sins and that he was raised on the third day. We need to note how Paul says what he says and exactly what he's saying in here when he talks about this first importance, that Jesus' death and his resurrection are the most important things of his message. But notice that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he uh, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's not, let me say it this way, Jesus' death and resurrection is these are the most important events that have ever taken place apart from creation. That that God became a man and that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. But it's not just that Jesus did these things, it's that he did them in accordance with the scriptures. So, rightly so, a, a lot of people love to speak about the um, the the legitimacy, or there's another word for it, for the, the historical accuracy of Jesus' resurrection. It's it's an astounding event. It's naturally 
unbelievable because people don't come back from the dead. And yet when you study the scriptures and other other evidences um, of this event, we know how there have been many people who have sought to disprove Jesus' resurrection and have come back as believers, Josh McDowell being one of, one of the more famous people that, that that happened to. And it's good and right to encourage people to look at the evidence for the resurrection. But notice the resurrection needs to be understood in accordance with the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament Bible, Old Testament scriptures. Um, G- the resurrection of Jesus is not just an amazing event, but it's supposed to be understood within the context of Scripture. Then he goes on and talks about that this is a reliable historical event, verses 5 through 11. And then he appeared to Cephas or Kepha, which is the Aramaic. It's um, The name Peter is the Greek form going back to the Aramaic Kepha. That's the nickname that Jesus gave Simon. We often, which we often say Peter, it's Kepha. So he, then he appeared to Cephas or Kepha, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So he's he's really running home this that Jesus' resurrection really happened. But I'm not, not going to go into detail into this section. What follows is some interesting complex logic that we, we really need to get the point of. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So it seems to be that some people were teaching in Corinth that while, yeah, they believe Jesus rose from the dead, that there was not going to be a general general resurrection of the dead. And it, the Paul appeals to his this logic that he has based on scripture that there is this very intimate relationship between Jesus' resurrection and the general resurrection of the dead. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ, then not even Christ has been raised. Now this logic is would likely feel strange to us, but it's not strange to Paul. And Paul is speaking under, writing under the inspiration of God And so we need to understand this logic that he's using. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So he's saying, if this notion of a general resurrection one day, when when Jesus will return and judge everyone, and some will be raised to life, and some will be raised to death, eternal death, Um, That notion, that Old Testament notion, if that is not true, then Jesus himself did not raise, did not raise, was not raised from the dead. You go, well, that doesn't really make sense, right? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then he rose from the dead, and it doesn't really have uh, any relationship to anything else. No, not according to Paul, because Jesus' resurrection was not just oh, this only good man who ever lived died, and therefore the earth spat him out. 
and he couldn't stay dead. It, it, it's not just that there's some truth in that, but that's not really what it's all about. What's really going on is the resurrection of the Messiah is the positive proof that the expectation that God would one day raise the dead and that the righteous would be raised to life and the wicked would be raised to eternal death, that that notion that only a few people believed in prior to the preaching of the gospel, and it was only certain Jewish people like Paul and others in the Jewish world who anticipated this based on scripture, that that that's what Jesus' resurrection is all about. Jesus' resurrection is a sort of first fruits and the proof that we have confidence that one day we will not stay dead, we will we will rise from the dead. And in fact, Paul says in another place that some people will be transformed when Jesus returns. They won't actually ever, ever die. Uh, but when he returns, it'll be time for the judgment and what the Bible refers to as the age to come. And so in Jesus, we have that first taste of the age to come. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So everything depends on the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, which is connected to the general resurrection one day. So without the truth of the resurrection, actually occurring in history, the whole Christian venture is a bad joke. It's worse than that, actually. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Notice, he's not saying we're misrepresenting God because we're saying Jesus rose when he didn't rise. He's saying that if this resurrection concept that they were experiencing is not true, then the whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So Paul is is thinking this backwards from how many of us would think. But I, I want to believe what Paul is saying because he is teaching the truth from God that The resurrection of Jesus is completely dependent on the truth of our future resurrection. But then he says, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So if there's no general resurrection, then Jesus' resurrection is is a fake and we are lost. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people, we are of all people most to be pitied. So actually, without the expectation of a future resurrection, we're ridiculous. The whole Christian venture is ridiculous and we should be pitied. Now, through history and even today, some people would say that the Christian life is worth living whether or not it's actually true, because of all the goodness that we're taught in the Bible. And I get that. I think there's a lot of goodness. There's uh, Following God's ways certainly seem to be better than not following God's ways. They lead to a good life. Ignoring them leads to a bad life. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying 
that if this isn't true, if there is no general resurrection, therefore there, Jesus didn't rise, then we should be pitied for what we believe. Verse 20, but if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who, sorry, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's what I mentioned earlier. That's Jesus' resurrection is not simply um, a, a demonstration of God's power. It's not simply the opportunity for us to uh, adore him for being this one who's raised from the dead. It's that he is the proof positive of the future resurrection. Verse 21, for as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And Paul's speaking about a principle here that there was this representative man at the beginning, Adam, and his failure to uh, obey God and, and by going his own way, he brought death not only to himself, but to us all. So by that same principle, there was a new representative man, Jesus the Messiah, who by his obedience and faithfulness to the Father resulted in his rising from the dead, but it was not just for him only, it was to bring this to all. And the all here is not to just anybody and everybody, that's clearly the scripture does not teach that, but all who are in right relationship with him can also in, anticipate the future resurrection. Uh, but there's a process going on. Verse 24, um, start, sorry, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This is coming. This is coming. We're in a process. And we don't always see the process clearly. Sometimes the process seems it's not happening, but it is happening. Verse 25, for we must reign, sorry, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The resurrected Jesus is reigning now. That's what he says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. The whole um, messianic project is based on who Jesus is and what he's done. He's risen from the dead. He's conquered death. Now we go out in his name. And we're part of this process where he's putting all God's enemies under his feet. And it climaxes with, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's expecting, that he's accepting, i read it again, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is all to say, God is restoring all things, and everything that has been against God is being subjected to God through this process. One day that process will be complete, and God is going to fully reign. Are you and I going to be part of that? And, and, and so that begs the question, will we be part of that future resurrection? For it's only for those who have been faithful to God in Jesus. 
Now, we're going to close with this last section. Next time, uh, we're going to talk about the nature of our future resurrection, because it isn't exactly how a lot of people tend to think. I want to see what the Bible says about what we are expecting in what the Bible refers to as the age to come, that all true believers will be part of. I just want to look at this last part because it's important because Paul explains here the nature of this Christian life. Remember he said earlier, if this if we're this isn't true, if there's no general resurrection, which means Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then um, we are most to be pitied. And yet some people think, but the Christian life is a good life to live. It's like even if it's not all true, aren't isn't it still the best? Let's see what Paul says here. He starts off with what seems to be a strange custom. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? There seemed to be a a custom where believers were being baptized on behalf of their relatives who had died, who maybe they didn't know the Lord. Paul's not saying here that this is what we should do or that it actually works. All he's saying is, if if the dead aren't raised, why are people going to the trouble of, of, of doing that? I actually would not would not recommend that custom. He goes on, verse 30, Why are we in danger every hour? I, prote- I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I'm at logic. If the dead are not raised, just live it up. Who cares? Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. He's talking about listening to people who are teaching lies about God and his word. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The Corinthians were listening to people that were saying, ah, it doesn't matter, live any way that you want, and, and then strange ideas about the resurrection. Um, Paul's demonstrating here what it means to be a true believer. A true believer is going to face danger. A true believer is going to face all sorts of pushback. And yet, throughout history, sometimes the Christian has been the most safe, the, uh, the, the most privileged in the society. The, the, the one who, is, who has the upper hand in, in that society, in so-called Christian societies, is actually nonsense. Because in all throughout history, when people have stood for the truth of God, there's always been pushback. And, and sadly, it's often come from the church. The Christian life is actually a dangerous life. It's a life of risk, of trusting God in doing what he's calling us to do. And it often goes against what the rest of the people in the society um, are doing. It, we, our local newspaper that we get here in, in Canada, there was a little ad uh, at the bottom of the front page from our, our, our member of provincial parliament and had her picture, name, of course, and one message, two words. Keep safe. And I've been wondering about that. I I know what it's supposed to mean, maybe. But is that a motto that believers should adopt? Uh, 
through my life, you know, I've, I've learned the way I, when I say farewell to someone, I often say, take care. And I've often thought, is that what believers should be saying to each other? You know, take care. And I've heard people say it this way, be careful. Is that how we're supposed to be living? I, we're not supposed to be ridiculous. We're not supposed to be reckless. We're supposed to be wise. But we're called to live on the edge. We're called to hear God and, and go against the grain. When you go against the grain, you get splinters. But many of us, we avoid the splinters of life. We need to be hearing God and obeying him. And that will put us out of sorts with certain people. Now, I know we could be arrogant in the name of faith. We could be foolish in the name of faith. I'm, I'm very, very aware of that. But we look at the examples of people in the Bible and we look at Paul's example here that I just read in 1 Corinthians. No wonder he's saying we should be pitied if we don't have the expectation of a real resurrection to come, which should give us the proper perspective on not only death, but life. Paul's saying, without this expectation, I'm being absolutely ridiculous because I'm risking my life every day for you believers, you, and calling you into a similar life. It's a dangerous life. It's not a safe life. And I've been concerned. I've, I've told you before about my family doctors, what he said very early with, with COVID. He said this, he, describing what's the, these early um, regulations that were being even just considered at that time. And he said this is a secular society's response to a situation like this. We're not living, you and I, many of us are, I should say it this way, because I don't know what you're doing. Are we living like people are going to live forever? Are we? Or are we afraid of dying? We're not supposed to live according to fear. We're supposed to live according to faith. I know I've talked about this before, and I talk about it a lot because I struggle with this. And I want to be the kind of person that lives according to faith, who's able to look at life and death with the confidence of faith. And yeah, and, and we're going to continue on about the nature of the, the age to come next time. But let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have so much to look forward to. That we don't have to worry about today. We know that already in your word. With, we were told not to be anxious for anything. Not to worry about tomorrow. And yet so many of us, many of us are, are terrified Help us or forgive us, Lord, and help us to, to hear what you're saying to us and to trust you, to rest in you, and to obey you, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca.